Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, Point of Origin listeners. It's Stephen Satterfield. And before we begin today's episode, I feel I must acknowledge the enormity of the global crisis we now face. COVID-19 has claimed the lives of thousands all over the world and sadly untold numbers more. We mourn the loss of life and livelihood, and particularly the collapse of the U.S. restaurant industry, a thought that is so difficult to imagine that I'm not yet sure I can process its magnitude. Today's interview is with Palestinian and Syrian chef and restaurateur Reem Asil. Reem just one week before her restaurant's opening and I had a chance to talk about her forthcoming restaurant and what now seems like a very long time ago and a much simpler times as Reem's place was closed down just two days after opening and is now closed indefinitely as we all collectively await the fate of restaurants all over the country and over the world. So we decided to play this interview in its entirety for a couple reasons. The first is that Reem is a brilliant and important voice in the North American restaurant industry, and we wanted to allow the proper space for her wisdom and experience to come to the fore. And, you know, related to the crisis itself, what you will hear is a brilliant person who's unique background and worldview was really ahead of the curve in so many ways. And what you will hear was a very broken system within the restaurant industry. So what I believe this interview provides for for us is a bit of organizational and uh, an intersectional 
roadmap for how we might be able to better organize ourselves on the other side of this. So without further ado, chef and restaurateur Reem Asil. Hello. Hey, there you go. Well, I really appreciate you taking time. How are you spending your days these days? Yeah, I sort of toggle between Fruitvale and Mission, but mostly trying to open this space in the Mission. Mm-hmm. And I believe I'm I read... Somewhere in between have a family life. Hello, right? It's shrinking. <laughs> somewhere it's in shrinking. between. They understand. Mama, Mama's got to get these bills paid. You know, we just hired a new staff. It's, it's a group of 10 lovely people. I'm like... <sighs> Try not to get too attached. I'm like, these are all natural born leaders. Like we just had a three day training with all of them. And it's not like your average restaurant training. I think they're not, a lot of them, you know, have like come from the traditional setting where they just like go around and they're a body anywhere they apply. Mm -hmm. And here it's like, no, like we're going to talk about systems of oppression <laughs> it's like these are what our murals are and we expect you all to like know these things and we did like arab hospitality 101 so it's it's cool to kind of see people the spark in people's eyes and like really kind of we, we did a really good job sort of like weaning it down to 10 solid leaders and then hopefully it'll grow definitely i want to talk about some of the stuff you just brought up um, yeah. beginning with systems of oppression. So <laughs> if if I come uh, expecting to get a restaurant job and um, I start, I'm talking to you about systems of, of oppression, how do you lead into that conversation? Well, it's, it's more subtle. I mean, I think part of what our job is, uh, I think as, as people who maybe come from a more privileged background of understanding social justice, some uh, like, you know, speaking more for myself, I'm college educated and like my awakening. I mean, I think being a Palestinian, you're always politicized from a very early age. So I understood systems of oppression to some extent. And I think, you know, communities, especially ones who've been marginalized, sort of understand it intrinsically. They just maybe haven't been given the resources to articulate it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we suss out is just sort of in our interviews, we talk about sort of Reem's core values. And then we have internal core values too. So we have external sort of w- the way that we want the world to be and the way that we want that to be reflected in our business. You know, things like centering folks of color, immigrants, women, queer folks first, you know, supporting the local ecosystem, an already vibrant ecosystem, you know, whether it be supporting local farmers or local businesses or providing our space to community organizations and then community building, which is like the most universal one, you know, like you can't really organize unless you build trust and community and cohesion and you know at, at, at its very basics that's Reem's mission is to, to build that community so just sort of having a conversation with people about that but then we really get <laughs> we get deep we're like these are our core values we have like four five core values that we ask people like tell people right off the bat this is what we're looking for and then just see how they talk about it and react to it and apply it to their daily lives. And you'd be really surprised how much people really sort of understand. Hmm. Can you share Um, some of those core values? Sure. Um, Well, the 
the ultimate one, we, we talk about integrity. So we want people who are honest, who really believe in just mutual respect. And they would act the same way when people are watching than when people are not watching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they really value sort of the basic tenets of human rights, right? The mm-hmm. people to stand in their dignity and treat everyone that way. Um, we talk about commitment. Commitment is a big thing. I feel like we, and it's hard in this economy where it is, there's so much instability. Like we're asking people to take that leap of faith to commit to commit to this job, to commit to the vision of Reams. It doesn't mean they have to stay forever, but they're we're asking them to give us a commitment, a commitment to themselves and their team. So that's a really big one we ask. Um, desire to grow, just like we want people who really, not just like are open to feedback, but want to grow, want to be transformed. I think that especially uh, if you're going to spend most of your time in the workplace, it should be a transformative space. So. You know, we talk about transformation in our communities and and how we want to do that for our customers. But really, you know, (laughs) you can teach some of them, but, you know, and and, and the world is tough out there. You know, sometimes it brings out the worst in us, even those of us who, you know, have the potential to be our best. Um, So we try to, like, really probe and, and find and learn about people and how they are in their lives more than, like, how they are in the workplace, because we understand that the workplace especially in the restaurant industry, is just plagued with racism, <laughs> classism, ableism, all of the things, right? So, like, it's it's hard to just use that as an assessment for who we bring into the space. Right. And I have to say you're speaking with a particular depth and fluency on this subject. And if I'm not mistaken, don't you have a background as a community organizer? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. So this is this is all like new language, and as someone who grew up in restaurants, really new ideas about what's possible. Yeah, it's like it's it's so interesting. I approach sort of building my restaurant as an entrepreneur, like an organizer. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I was a labor organizer. I used to, you know, underground organize like airport workers and service workers, people who wouldn't even tell me what they were making on an hourly wage because they're afraid of retaliation. Mm-hmm. I remember like those first days, finally, like after recruiting 10 people, getting them in a room together and saying, this is the beginning, right? This is the beginning of building your power. I take, I think a lot of the skills that I built as an organizer sort of help translate to this setting where, you know, you're as an organizer, you're a facilitator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you are obviously you're a leader. You're you're inspiring folks, but you're more behind the scenes to find to find ways to draw out the collective power that's already there. You know, um, and I think that the, where this butts up in against sort of the the limitations working in sort of a capitalist system where you got to. You know, you got to keep moving, got to make money, you got to turn a profit. You can't, you know, it's it's hard to find the ways to find that time to make that transformation. But we ha- have done it. You know, we've taken the short term hit with the hope that the investment in people, you know, spending time and paying people to come for trainings and um, to spend that time for them to really sort of understand their skill set and be self-reflective as a way to like invest long term. I think about that even with my staff who've stayed with me to three to four years, like 
how do we make sure that we continue to show people growth and to continue to inspire people and motivate them. Um, that work doesn't just like stop at one training, but unfortunately it takes time and it takes resources. And, you know, I, I hope, I hope that I'm sharing a model that would resonate with other like-minded folks in the industry where we could combine forces to do more of that to scale. Cause I think, you know, not that we're going to start a revolution, within the industry, but most of low income communities of color are working in the industry. It's one of mm. the, it is, I think, the biggest employer of people in the country. So why not start somewhere where we have masses of people oh, you yeah. know, that we can galvanize and politicize and transform, you know? So yeah, I think we don't beat people over the <clears throat> head with any of our politics, but we really, sort of hope that the space is politicizing in and of itself. Right. And to your point, you know, a lot of the conversations around the increase in minimum wage and in fact, the actualization of that increase can be credited to fast food workers campaigning. So this this mentality is obviously ingrained in you and your background have you reached a point yet as an entrepreneur and business owner in which your values and your background as an organizer have felt challenged or conflicted uh, <laughs> as, an, as an entrepreneur and business owner? When I made the switch to become an entrepreneur, like I understood the contradictions. I struggled with them for a little bit, you know, as someone who has deep resentment for capitalism as a system and Mm -hmm. understand that it is not the way and that we won't really have true democracy or true liberation in in the context of capitalism. I also understand that in order to, you know, fight the good fight and to imagine an alternative system, we need to build resilience and resources in our community. So we need Mm -hmm. We need to take care of our own. You know, I would say that I am trying to be outside the box, right? I'm a little bit on the fringes of all of it because I don't operate my business in in the most traditional sense. You know, if you look at all the rules of the game, you know, we run a 40% labor line and we build our model around that. Um, We, you know, this, this restaurant is not just a restaurant space. We provide a business that is the destination spot and hits the, you know, all the the cool lists like Mm -hmm. we understand that we are those contradict you know that we live in that contradiction like we need the people with more disposable income to understand and spend money on us and pay for the true cost of food right we need to keep our prices high so that we can pay our workers but then we don't want to price out our own community so i'm constantly grappling with how do i have both and Mm -hmm. um you know because you need that and um, yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is that, you know, restaurants are a conduit. They're a conduit from urban to rural areas. They're a conduit from the rich to the poor. They're, you know, like we're, yeah, I'm constantly having to come up around hard decisions around what's my values, who who do we serve versus who we do, do we not serve? Mm-hmm. Like what do we make explicit versus implicit? Um, you know, obviously I took a really bold stance in Fruitvale putting, you know, Palestinian activists on my wall. Um, I just, I didn't realize it was a problem until <laughs> there was the sobering reality um, of this political context that, that we're in. So there are often times where I like, I don't think it's a problem until 
you know, then I'm met with challenges and then I have to, you know, I'm, I, then I'm faced with a choice, either hide or be invisibilized the way you have, you know, and, and in times of my life, you know, I've had to do that and my community has had to do that or, you know, double down and, and be more outspoken. And luckily I've chosen <laughs> the latter. <laughs> um, you know, I think being outspoken has been really my greatest asset and my best tool to really help other people come out of the trenches <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, join with me. But yeah, certainly it's not easy on a day-to-day basis to run a business. I mean, even things of like where I source, you know, like we unfortunately need to rely on the gig economy of like delivery service. As an entrepreneur myself, agree and underscore the need for multiple strategies in transformation work. Um, So I want to talk to you about that controversy of having an activist that really I feel was a definitive moment for you. I'm interested in that you did something that doesn't happen very often, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. stand your ground and really emerge within this our institution, we'll say, of the culinary, conventional culinary (laughs) world and media, even more beloved, dare I say, um, Mm -hmm. as someone who has observed your work for the last few years and up close. So um, how do you feel after that situation? I just want to know how you're feeling in, in light of that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I still get really emotional about it. I think that, um, uh, I, I'm really, really lucky. I mean, if the, the older version of myself talked to the younger version of myself, I would have told her, like, build community as soon as possible because, like, I don't think that I could have stood my... I mean, I had a lot of people who came to my support. So when I when we first got those attacks, you know, organizations that I'd worked for, for year, worked with for years basically like came to my side and like set up an SOS system and helped me build my narrative and it really helped me build the like inner strength to to say no this is who I am and this is this is I mean clearly I had an affinity towards wanting to make a stand I called my food Arab food rather than Middle Eastern or Mediterranean like you know I was already making subtle political stances from the very beginning, I may have not realized that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was just another part of that mission. And so to have people by my side helping me build those sort of inner reserves, I think is is really what, what helped me get through that process. So I'm, yeah, I feel like that that was a group effort. I mean, obviously it took courage for me to do that, but it just made me see the power of like, community and 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 what i've built and what we've built you know obviously it's scary running a business and there are the ebbs and flows but like you it's sort of like a security blanket Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i just know that my community is going to have my back but uh, that doesn't i mean it doesn't negate all of the trauma and 
the experiences I've had and sort of witnessed sort of uh, on the on the periphery of myself or my community anytime that we assert our identity as Palestinians were punished. You know, certainly Rasmia, who's who who you know was an activist on my wall, and now that I know, you know, she lost the little battle. She's still winning because she is resilient and continuing to do the work that she's doing in Jordan after um, her deportation. But it does feel like a little loss for our community, you know? Um, And I think about all of these, these folks who've taken a stance, who did it for the greater good and, you know, were martyred or, you know, lost their jobs over it. So like... The community that had your back is entirely a reflection of you and all of the love and earnestness that you put out in the world when you were building that community. (laughs) Um, And in just your existence has done so much for so many people who are not even Palestinian, you know, but just in terms of creating that much needed space for so many of us. Um, So I appreciate you for that. Oh, thank you. Definitely. Yeah, I'd like to think this this really intersects. I mean, intersectionality is a big piece of the work that I do. So, you know, the, this is just a it's a it's a symbol of the bigger issues, right? Mm-hmm. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562 562- 
314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Last night, Celine, who is our producer for this podcast, she came to see you talk um, and she told me this really great quote, which I'm paraphrasing, which basically went like, if you build it, then they will come build it with me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which I feel is an, a perfect encapsulation of what you're saying right now yeah. about, about the community. So um, tell me if I got that right, yeah. like what, yeah. what your philosophy is on, on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I was saying last night was like, a lot of people are just like, build it and they will come. And I'm like, okay, let them build it with me mm-hmm. <laughs> because well, one, I don't have all the answers. You know, I think that that is a fault. I think a lot of people who want to present something to a community, like I think it's two way process. Right. And, it's very lonely, especially I'm sure you can resonate with this as an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, it can be very lonely and not having thought partners and not having community if you don't seek them out. And like what better way than to be sort of a partner in, especially if you have, for me, I have a physical space to be able to meet my community and see where they're at and see what they want and to be able to sort of give and take, as we say, like we have mm-hmm. a, an Arabic, we say give and take and that has really served us well because it keeps reams from being stagnant keeps us always evolving it keeps us always sort of self-reflecting on what we're doing well and what we're not and I'm always just really amazed by how brilliant people's ideas are and also saddened when people are so knocked down that like we've lost our ability to imagine so what would happen if we create spaces where people can kind of think outside the box and you know I think that's what I've done at Reams you know both internally and externally so like internally I really try to build processes that are more collective you know I mean it's kind of ironic that the business is named after me but (laughs) so much of the the growth of it has been sort of a collective effort of my leaders Mm -hmm. um, you know so I think, yeah, it just keeps me honest too. It keeps me on my game. <laughs> That's right. I think that is the the crucial part too is about the accountability it provides for you as the as the business owner too, right? Like totally. Let's talk about food for a little bit. I would love to know what some of your earliest and most formative food memories are and then tell us about like your transition from organizing into food into food yeah I've been reflecting a lot on this I I feel sort of robbed (laughs) of like my food memories from my childhood a little bit and it's not to say I didn't have any experiences with food but we were very much like sort of uh I was a latchkey kid both my parents were working and my mom was going to school and working. So she didn't really sort of cook the traditional foods. And so my, my life sort of toggled between macaroni and cheese, instant ramen, and then sort of family gatherings Mm -hmm. of like big, you know, plates of hummus and all the different meza spreads with bread, but it was never sort of the home cooked meal. 
um, that we had. I think when I think about sort of, and I grew up in the oldest of three, um, so it was me and my sisters and my parents. When my mom did have time to make food, you know, it was always sort of incorporating, you know, our flavors, sort of traditional Arab foods in um, uh, American dishes, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we would like have kofta meatballs in spaghetti mm-hmm. um, and like, which is you know, kind of classic. Mix in the red sauce. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of a classic immigrant and first generation story, right? It's like yeah. all of these iterations and adaptations. I, I kind of love yeah. that. Yeah. And like um, the Pali Kali, which is like our popular dish on the Reams menu is sort of a merge. It really is an homage to my mother, like the Masachan, which is like the traditional chicken dish that Palestinians enjoy. You know, it, it's traditionally made in, on this thin bread, uh, but my mom used to sort of wrap it in tortillas for us and have these little chicken burritos. And that's always how I grew up eating it. I never grew up eating, you know, chicken like open faced on on pieces of bread mm-hmm. you know? and I'm like that is just genius and it's just you know for me I think I approached my food the way that my mom approached food about you know what what's familiar to people and what resonates and what's convenient you know what um, not taking food too seriously <laughs> and so yeah I think it wasn't until sort of my adult life that you know, and, and and we have the like I we we grew up our home away from home was Southern California where my grandmother was the matriarch of the family and she was the master cook, but she was very very secretive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not secretive. She was just like I don't need no help. I don't need any helpers. I will cook for an army and everybody out of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I have these memories of sort of peeking in on her and like you know just like she was. Just, the most amazing cook and she would just like make these elaborate spreads and you know for us like the biggest meal of the day was in the afternoon and we would you know go swimming it's she was like sort of the central nexus of the family we were all over the place everywhere from Greece to different parts of the states to back home in Lebanon and you know California would be the place that we'd all meet you know, and then when her health deteriorated, a lot of those food memories disappeared because mm. she could no longer cook for us. So it's, uh, you know, I'm still sort of delving through all of that and trying to understand. But for the most part, I feel like I really had to kind of search deep for the f- food. I was politicized from a very young age. Like politics have always been sort of a part um, of my experience so just being Palestinian, like my own, you know, we grew up in New England and <laughs> we would like take uh, trips to Plymouth Rock, you know, and, and learn about the pilgrims. And at the same time, like my uncle who's living with us would be like visiting the jails and like showing solidarity with Native Americans because mm-hmm. Palestinians and Native Americans are uprooted from the land. Like, so I understood those contradictions mm-hmm. or at least witnessed them from a very young age. You know, I went to Gaza at the age of 12 and like, you know, two years after sort of went to the deep South, uh, like organized a trip to the deep South with my history teacher because I wanted to learn about the real history of civil rights. I wow. was able to make those connections to Gaza. So it was like all this cumulative stuff, but it led to like a deep depression um, mm. in 2001. And unfortunately it manifested in like not being able to eat. I think a lot of our communities, food and the way that we deal with our mental health 
food is very intersectional with that. And, you know, I dropped over 30 pounds within two months. I was, you know, in the hospital. I was sick. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, Every time I wanted to eat, I couldn't keep it down. So I had to leave that context of this, like, sort of super neoliberal, you know, private college setting and you know, I found California. <laughs> I rediscovered, I was like, let me get as far away from Boston as I co- can. Mm-hmm. And it was in sort of my move to California where, you know, I'm obviously it wasn't an overnight healing, but um, it was in sort of finding activism and food at the same time that my healing started to happen. And slowly but surely I was starting to learn recipes that I could eat. I remember my memory of the first farmer's market I had ever been to, which is like, yeah, like my eyes just started to open to this world. And I think, yeah, I started to like pick up cookbooks and learn how to cook this that I had grow, grown up on and taken for granted as an adult. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Your journey is such a good representation of who you are in that it's all encompassing, like with the politics and the health it's an unusual journey, but I think it just speaks to why what you've created is so unusual as well. And I think about this when I share the story with other people, there are similar stories, like people don't talk about mm. sort of their relationship to food and how it's evolved, you know, through its intersection with trauma, its intersection. There's just so many things like we talk about, you know, physical health and, and mental health are very interconnected. And especially for communities who've been displaced or, you know, have experienced trauma in in different ways, like it's very connected to food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, 
It's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to ask you about Palestinian food in particular, or really, I guess this is, this will also lead us into the realm of language. Palestinian food is oftentimes absorbed under these broader names like Mm -hmm. Middle Eastern or Mm -hmm. even Mediterranean or Mm -hmm. Israeli. So as a Palestinian chef who also has chosen to use Arab with purpose and intention. I was hoping you could just kind of help us better understand some things that are Palestinian and, you know, what do you feel the role of of these labels are in perpetuating Mm -hmm. ideas um, about Mm -hmm. Palestinian food? Yeah, first off, context is everything. I choose to sort of so so obviously the Arab world and especially the Levant, you know, which is all part of greater Syria, there was a lot of evolving and moving of foods and, you know, the foods that I grew up with. I mean, I'm Palestinian Syrian. I, I grew up more with, you know, my my mom's my mom's family's influence of the food than sort of my Syrian side. And there's there's obviously distinctions. Like I remember going to Syria uh, as an adult and being like, oh, I never grew up with this thing right so and that that is sort of a i think part and parcel to colonization and sort of the drawing up in lines and communities get more distinct as they're separated right um but for the most part you know there's a lot of similarities of the food so i kind of sort of deviate away from the jockeying for ownership of food um however i choose to talk about my food in different ways depending on the political context and right now for palestinians we're living in the political context of a people that have you know for almost a century now really since the early 1900s from the sort of british colonial forces and then sort of the zionist takeover of palestine have basically exhibited genocide, displacement, you know, a slow dying death where, you know, life for Palestinians who are living under those those conditions, there's there's a, basically a thin, thin line between life and death, you know? And as an international community, calling these foods Israeli or calling these foods, you know, just a complete sort of omission of a Palestinian identity further works to normalize that reality for us. Mm -hmm. And so the act of asserting, you know, that these foods are Palestinian and they have been indigenous to that land way before the takeover of that land is a political act, right? It's a political act uh, to say that we're going to resist, you know, that our existence is resistance. And I don't know, speaking for myself in the diaspora, it adds to my resilience, you know, because identity and 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 feeling a sense of identity is so intertwined with like our motivation to live and and be mm-hmm. you know so when you lose that it makes it really hard to to be motivated to sort of be in this world and and find humanity with others right when you have a loss of identity mm-hmm. and so in the context of occupation and apartheid and, and not even having our 
basic human rights, especially in occupied Palestine, the food becomes a way to sort of assert that. You know, we're the, one of the biggest refugee populations. Some of us have lost our language, <laughs> um, lost our traditions. And so food becomes a way of, to keep those alive. I remember like at a very young age, like why why do we talk about Palestine all the time? Like I remember like asking my uncle that and he was like, you know, we may not see the liberation of our land in, you know, in our lifetime, but we need to keep this going because I need my children to know that we're Palestinian. I need my grandchildren to know that they're Palestinian, you know, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, food mm -hmm. becomes a way to keep those alive. I, I, I think about this a lot because, you know, living in California and learning some of these recipes and talking to my family or to my mom about, you know, and a lot of my mom's side of the family is from Gaza and, and still live there. They can't cook these foods. Musakhan, which is the main ingredient of musakhan, the chicken and onion dish, is olive oil. It's a dish that like, you know, really celebrates the olive harvest, which is like so integral to Palestinian cuisine. And because of the blockade in Gaza, people cannot afford olive oil. They can't afford the thing that is very indigenous to their land. In the West Bank, where the olives basically like make up a huge part of like rural living, on a daily basis, they're dealing with the Israeli government and the, the occupying forces, you know, raising their lands and uprooting their olive trees, things that take 40 years to grow and mature. So... You know, I feel very privileged to be able to keep that dish alive in its truest form when my family cannot make that dish to its truest potential because mm. of the conditions there. Fish and seafood is another thing. I mean, in Gaza, you know, that on the coast, a lot of their cuisine was based on seafood, but no longer can, right? Because the Israeli government controls the waters. <laughs> And, and fishermen can no longer fish and subsist off of the very thing that they're they were subsisting off for many generations so mm -hmm. yeah i think it's very political and so i choose to tell those stories i think it's more important to tell the stories and like with the israeli food craze there's a very intentional sort of way in which palestinian identity is omitted you know they talk about all the influences of arab jewish populations that immigrated there they have no problem talking about that but there's like this very stark omission of palestinian even the word palestinian in the cuisine because the very sort of speaking of palestinian is a threat right hmm. so yeah, we have to talk about that. I think that that is really important, that context. Um, right. Not necessarily about who owns what, but what is the story behind it that we're trying to either mask or normalize? Or... Mm -hmm. Because, for instance, there is no Palestinian coalition who will be funding the world to come visit and eat there. Right. Exactly. Yeah, we right. don't have those resources. So, can you can you talk about this because I know this yeah. was um this is another really hotly contested issue that you were a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean the US uh I mean the <laughs> I I always just interchangeably use the Israeli government and the US government because mm -hmm. they go hand in hand. Like if anybody thinks that 
the U.S. is under the lure of Israel, it's 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 a very symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they need each other, right, to sort of maintain control mm-hmm. o- over that region. But in the more recent years, and this is, I think, this is just something for us in the food world to really understand is that food may be one of the last frontiers of organizing, you know? Mm. Um, it's really a way to galvanize the hearts and minds of people. If you think about food, it's the it's the thing that intersects with everybody's lives. And so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, so the Israeli government has put millions and millions of dollars into what they call their gastro diplomacy <laughs> programs and it's a way to sort of combat the denormalization of Israeli apartheid so the, there's a big movement globally um, over the last 10 years that have called for boycott divestment and sanctions and it's a way to sort of economically and politically sort of isolate Israel um, until sort of the government makes makes changes right ends apartheid and it's modeled off of South Africa in the 80s, and which was a very successful movement of people pushing on the U.S. government and all entities that were investing in that apartheid movement, and eventually apartheid fell. Um, so one of those avenues around it is sort of the cultural boycott, right? And so people are starting, I mean, you know, with the advent of internet and, and all the things, people are not oblivious to what's happening to the Palestinian people. So as a way to sort of counteract that and sort of strike their image, you know, that we're like this haven and, you know, there's a certain whitewashing. We even say a pinkwashing. There's a lot of, you know, all the different greenwashing. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, let me, let's just like present Israel in the best light to people so they can see it's not all that bad. Right. And so they've like basically done these sort of tours, these culinary tours for people um, to come and, it's like, you know, celebrating farm to table cuisine and how ironic that they're doing farm to table where right next door they're like raising farmlands on a daily basis mm-hmm. and kicking people out of their homes, you know, and basically illegally putting settlements right in the middle of people's villages. So, you know, we wanted to point the hypocrisy of that and the irony of that and, you know, uh, really push on people in the culinary world, especially because they look for influencers. You know, this is not the first time. I think they, the other arena they've done a really good job is in the sports arena, in which, you know, people like Michael Bennett from, and this is going to really reveal my lack of knowledge. In <laughs> I think he football. played for the, um, uh, for the Seahawks, maybe. <laughs> for the Seahawks, yeah. yes. Um, who, you know, read up on it was like, I'm not going to be used as a tool to normalize this, you know. Um, but they they find culinary influencers, you know, really sort of known chefs who have a following to go there and to sort of normalize. And we pushed back against that. I think the late, the the biggest victory we had, we we held sort of a series of pop-ups that really were like, okay, if you guys are going to have these events, we're going to have our own, um, what they were calling round tables. We called it the asymmetrical table because the playing field is not really leveled. Mm -hmm. And we held a series of those in New York and they were like, it's amazing. People really want to understand and learn about, you know, what are the dynamics there but the following year we pushed on gabrielle hamilton and a few other chefs in the u.s to pull out of their roundtables, and we were able to get them to do it 
So I think things are changing. People don't want to be associated with apartheid. And, you know, I, I feel like the tides are shifting a little bit. I mean, you see this in the political sphere, like even the Democratic Party <laughs> doesn't want to go to the APAC conference, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't want to be seen as so. You know, I just I feel like uh, I'm part of that movement sort of in my culinary setting to have these hard conversations and, you know, to engage people both on a public and a private level of what do we do to really use food as a tool to talk about these stories and to reconcile and to also ensure justice. You know, like people are like, oh, can your food bring peace between <laughs> you know, like that sort of, can your food be priests between the Arabs and Jews? I'm like, there's not a problem between Arabs and Jews, right? Like, that's not the actual issue at hand. And my food isn't going to be the thing that brings peace. It's justice that's going to bring peace. But yeah. if my food can be a way to start conversations, then that's great, you know? But I, I don't, I think it's going to take the work of a lot of people who believe in justice and believe in social justice to really think about how do we turn the system up on its head. And, 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 and the biggest thing is, you know, supporting Palestinians and their call for liberation, their right to return, their right to have a seat at the table and have the same human rights as everyone else. And you can't really do that in an exclusionary form, right? Right. Like one people can't be... <laughs> promise something over another people. So until we sort of get to that, and so, you know, we continue to assert our identity, we can, we continue to try to live, and it's in those simple acts of cooking and keeping our food alive, whether it's here or there, that we do that. And I just feel excited to be a part of that movement. I'm connection. I'm we're working on a um, delegation in the fall harvest of 2021. If, Folks are interested in that between food sovereignty activists here in the U.S. and Puerto Rico and food sovereignty activists in Palestine. And I'm really excited about that because I think a lot of these delegations that go to the region, it's like it feels a little extractive. Mm -hmm. And this delegation is more like an exchange. You know, what Mm -hmm. can we learn from each other? Like the, the work that Palestinians are doing on the ground, I mean, from the small little pop-ups to, you know, the more sort of organizing efforts to get healthy foods in the schools. It's really amazing, like what people are doing with so little resources. And I think that there's a lot to learn sort of across uh, movements. Definitely. Well, yeah. count, count yeah. me in for that uh, yeah. 2021 trip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're uh, having a series of events. We, we just had an event with Bryant Terry here at the MOAD um, where we talked about sort of the intersections of Black liberation struggle around food sovereignty. We want to do an event with indigenous communities here in San Francisco. We're looking to do pop-ups in Detroit for the Allied Media Conference. So, yeah, just really using this as a way to sort of engage people about the intersections, too, because it's not all that different what's happening on the ground over there and what's happening here in in the US. I want to ask you a question about the the sanctions because the people who got really pissed off about that basically said, "Well, why are you isolating Israel? Why are you singling out Israel when so many countries including our own as you pointed out commit mm-hmm. horrible atrocities?" Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't see the same kind of organizing. So it's not that Mm -hmm. we have anything against 
Palestine, but we really don't get why mm-hmm. you're singling us out. So what is your response to that? <laughs> I just think that's a pivot. I mean, I think the biggest response to that is that the U.S. is an accomplice Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 the system and what it's able to do so we have the power to do something about that mm-hmm. you know there's like billions of dollars that go to one of the strongest militaries in the world you know if they didn't have all of that tax money that we pay as consumers they wouldn't be able to do what they do so mm-hmm. that's kind of how i talk about that um that we have the power as americans who you know our government is an accomplice to all of this I would say the same thing about our USA to do- <laughs> to Saudi dollars who mm-hmm. are creating a lot of uh, if you if you follow the money the US is inherently sort of the the single culprit in all of this mm-hmm. right and so as Americans we have the power in how we allocate our tax dollars and all of this to really affect change on sort of a massive level but yeah, I mean, without getting into the geopolitics, that's the simplest way. <laughs> but I could connect <laughs> all of these uh, really horrible governments and and how it's all actually connected I to know. that. So <laughs> I know you. <laughs> but that's can. another podcast. <laughs> that's a that's another <laughs> that's another conversation. But yeah, in the simplest form, obviously, we're accomplices and sort of the taxpayer dollars that we pay to this government and this military One. and being able to do what it's doing. 100. Reem, you are the <laughs> best. I love talking to you. I really appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank I really you. had um, such a great time chatting with you today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed that talk with Reem. Reem, thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us. If you all were moved by this discussion as I was and you would like to support Reem in her work, you can donate to her GoFundMe entitled Reem's Fruit Bale Worker Relief Fund, which you can find linked in the show notes for this episode, which is on our website, whetstonemagazine.com backslash point of origin. Thanks again, Reem. And we will be back next week with more from point of origin. Special thanks to my business partner who makes all things possible at Whetstone, our co-founder, Melissa She. Thanks, Mel. Thank you to Celine Glager, who is our lead producer, to Kat Hong, our editor, to Haven Obasalase, and Quentin LeBeau, our production interns. To our friends at iHeartRadio for helping us bring you this podcast. To Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer, engineer J.J. Pausway, and executive producer Christopher Hasiotis. I'm your host, The Origin Forager, Stephen Satterfield, and we will be back here next week with more from Whetstone Magazine's Point of Origin podcast. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? 
but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretz's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.